Welcome back. You are listening to the official Sasta podcast, and I always love to hear your thoughts and feedback on the show. You can do that on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs, and I respond to all messages personally there. However, to our episode today, and I'm thrilled to welcome Eugenio Pace to the hot seat today. Eugenio is the founder and CEO at AuthZero, the startup that allows you to rapidly integrate authentication and authorization for web, mobile, and legacy applications, so you can really focus on your core business. To date, Eugenio has raised over $213 million with AuthZero from some of the best in the business, including Meritech, Sapphire, Manu at K9, Bessemer and Trinity Ventures, just to name a few. Prior to founding AuthZero, Eugenio spent an incredible 12 years at Microsoft, leading the program management team in the Patterns and Practices group. I'd also have to say a huge thank you to Karen at Trinity, Manu at K9 and George at Meritech for providing some fantastic question suggestions today. I really do so appreciate that. But before we dive into the show today, you have to check out Electric. Why Electric? Well, did you know that if your network goes down, it can cost you on average $5,600 a minute. Electric can help. What if I also told you you could have 100% confidence that your business data is secure and allow for new employees to be onboarded with ease and offboarded securely in a few short clicks? Again, Electric can help. So your employees automatically have the right applications installed with the right permissions. And so it's time to make the change and engage with the first of its kind IT platform, Electric, delivering enterprise-grade IT support previously not available to small and medium-sized businesses at a fraction of the cost. So whether you have IT in-house or no IT at all, Electric solve it all at lightning fast speed, either remotely or sending a certified partner to you. So if you're interested in deploying world-class IT, which keeps your employees productive and data secure, visit electric.ai forward slash Sasta. That's electric.ai forward slash Sasta. And speaking of keeping your employees productive and happy, as Sasta, one of the most consistent lines we've heard from the community is, I love the events and I love the Sasta blog posts, but I just wish there was a way to train my team on all of this. Well, Sasta finally made it easy with Sasta Pro. Sasta Pro is an online, fully automated training program for SaaS leaders to train their teams on the entire Sasta playbook. Every week, Sasta Pro sends you a 10-minute lesson so your team can learn together at the same time. And if you sign up now, we'll actually give you one free pass to Sasta Annual in March, my favorite event of the year by far, and one free pass to Sasta Europa this summer. That's always amazing fun. Go to sastapro.com to sign up today. That's sastapro.com. However, that's quite enough from me. So now I'm very, very excited to hand over to Eugenio Pace, founder and CEO at AuthZero. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Eugenio, it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the show. I heard so many great things from Manu at K9, George at Meritech, and Karen at Trinity. So thank you so much for joining me today, Eugenio. Thank you, Harry. It's great to be here. I do want to kick off today with a little bit about you, though. So tell me, how did you make your way into what we both know to be the wonderful world of SaaS and also come to found the game changer of identity management in all zero? Well, my journey started just after college. I started my first company, so Altzero is technically my second company, but that didn't go very well, and I was very inexperienced and decided to change courses a little bit. I joined big companies. One of them was Microsoft after a while, and that was uh, one of the best things that happened to me. I learned everything that needs to be learned really about building a big software company, a global company. But after 13 years there, I decided that the entrepreneur bug in me was still around. And when I turned 42, which, you know, it's the answer for all things, um, (laughs) I decided to try it again. And so at the end of 2012, I decided to start out zero with a good friend of mine, somebody I knew for a long time, and here we are. 
You mentioned the time at Microsoft. I do have to ask, you spent an incredible 13 years there and really saw the hyperscaling firsthand. What were your biggest takeaways from seeing that hyperscaling? And I guess, how do you think it impacted your mentality building all zero? There are so many things about Microsoft. Microsoft is such a great company, really. And I feel so fortunate to be there. So the first takeaway is the platform mentality. And it's building stuff that not only does something for you, but also allows others to, to build on top of it. And so that was one. The second one was the developer mindset, which obviously is one of the multiple facets inside in Microsoft. But I took that away with us and we built Alt Zero around the developer persona. And then the scale, just uh, doing things not for you know a handful of customers or maybe hundreds of customers, but doing something that will impact the lives of thousands or hundreds of thousands of millions in their case. You know, thinking globally, thinking about a presence around the globe, really. So those are kind of the three main things that I took away from them. I do really want to kind of pick up on, on one of them specifically. And it's over the last few years, we've obviously seen the rise of developer-first businesses in Stripe, Twilio, SendGrid, many more. And AllZero shares this vein, obviously, with them. Now, I'm always a, a go-to-market nerd. And so with the innovation to developer-first, I guess, how does this fundamentally change the go-to-market? And who do you think has done this best in your mind? I think that some of the companies you mentioned, like Stripe, uh, Twilio, SendGrid, Heroku, in many ways, have kind of paved the way for us. We looked up to them in many, many ways. In fact, now that I recall, our very first tagline for the company, when I was explaining to others what we did, we said, like, you know, we are essentially Stripe for authentication. And so, like, the mechanism of selling to a constituency that it's kind of like non-traditional enterprise software buyer, it's interesting. We believe, perhaps the root belief is that every company really is a software company. And even though they might not call themselves a software company. But nowadays, you know, it's impossible to do anything without software. And so anything that will make the life of a developer in any of these companies easier or allow them to build better software, faster, more secure, more robust is going to be appreciated. And as you probably know, authentication and authorization is a concern that every company has. There's virtually no application in the world that does not require to know who their users are. And so we're solving this unique problem, but it's also universal. It's getting harder. And with this belief that empowering developers, it's a good way into all these companies. In terms of that insertion point, sorry, I'm too interested because I had a guest on the show the other day and they said with low ACV products, absolutely that kind of dev-centric, dev-first and kind of buyer works well, but it's so challenging to scale that kind of dev-buyer into real ACV enterprise budgets. How do you think about this ability to, to scale ACVs with the developer first kind of insertion point? And does it heavily limit the ACV under the procurement process? And that's absolutely true. Developers don't really own a lot of budget, typically. Unless you are a startup founder or you're building a company from scratch, then you own the budget. But those are typically lower budgets. However, they are the influencers and they are the technical decision makers into bigger budgets. So the way to simplify a little bit of emotion, we build a service that developers love and they want to use. And then they will go and stand up in front of their bosses, their managers, their the procurement people, and they will say, look, I can spend three months or six months building this thing myself, or I can just do it in one day if you approve this purchase order. 
And time to market, it's an important dimension. People tended in the past to underestimate the opportunity cost, the huge opportunity cost of having your developers working on things that you need, but they're not really core to your business. And I think that message resonates well. And now there's an understanding of that. And so we don't have really to spend a lot of or a disproportionate amount of effort convincing procurement, convincing the budget owners that this is the case. And so in, in a way, the developer does the work for us, you know, in terms of advocating for using our service. Totally with you there and no better advocates within an organization stay. Often the best way to really onboard them is with that kind of lighter touch trial and freemium version. We had a guy from snick.io on the show the other day and he said, your freemium version has to have your secret sauce in the product. I guess my question for you is, having had such success with freemium, would you agree with Guy here? And what have been the biggest lessons on what it takes to really make a freemium product so successful? I would wholeheartedly agree with that. I think the secret sauce has to be experienced in the very first touch of your product with your customers. And so we serve a very large constituency of customers. We have customers that don't pay us anything for a long time. In fact, in numbers, we have almost 20,000 of those. So 20,000 customers that use our service have been using the service for long period of time without paying us, but enjoying the flavor of our secret sauce. But then, and especially developers, that's another component of the developer ecosystem is that developers tend to be mobile and they will start in one project and then move to another one or change jobs and move. And, you know, they take that experience and that memory of the flavor with them. And so we are part of their toolbox that goes from one company to another. And so the when they move to our next one, next project, or when they just have a day job, you know, on Monday, they might be using us over the weekend for a pet project, but on Monday they have a day job and they bring us with them. And the experience, the secret sauce goes with them as well. Totally with you there. Can I ask, in terms of kind of that freemium and that trial experience, it's a difficult one in terms of the trials because you can limit it, I guess, on, on four different elements, so the API calls, seats, time, features. What have you found kind of drives the most successful trials and what's really worked for you in terms of that kind of measurement mechanism? Yeah, we limit on features. We limit on time, meaning that you can use our product for free for a limited amount of time on all features with no restrictions whatsoever. Then after that, there are limits in the number of users, there's limit in the number of API calls and whatnot, but it's still a very generous tier. So meaning that you can do meaningful full stuff within those limits. I think pricing and packaging is probably one of those things that as engineers, you know, I'm an engineer, so my background is in engineering. Pricing and packaging, we don't maybe pay as much attention to. We focus primarily on the features, technical features that is. But it's something that I would encourage everybody to kind of debug in the same way we debug software, right? So this pricing and packaging doesn't need to be necessarily a static thing. So I would encourage everybody to experiment and to try different things, to err on the side of being a little bit more generous, perhaps, because, you know, our philosophy, at least, is that we want our customers to experience as much of the secret sauce as possible throughout that period. Can I ask, in terms of the pricing, pricing is one of my nerdy passion projects. My question is, you never want to have a variable pricing mechanism that disincentivizes users from really engaging with your product. And so you don't want to limit, uh, in often cases, by certain elements that do limit that usage. How do you think about the right pricing mechanism that doesn't limit usage, but also extracts enough value for you to really make it worthwhile and profitable as a business? 
Yeah, that's why I think we encourage everybody or my recommendation to everybody is to try different things and to try different things because there's no single recipe. It's been one of those like holy grails of finding what is the right price? What is the formula? Give me the formula. It's so tempting to go and search for the formula. There's no formula because every company is different and the value that we provide is very different. Even within what we provide, the same capability to different people might be worth differently. And so you might be selling the same thing in a different context at completely different prices. So number one is experimentation and trying new things. I found that our customers have been very overall, like very reasonable. In general, people want to pay you for the value that they get. So you can have a very open, constructive conversation with your customers about pricing, why it's working, why it's not working for you, and what are the changes that you need to make. And over time, that has been an ever-evolving dimension that we've been tweaking and fine-tuning permanently. We're still doing it. Even today, after seven years of a lot of experiments, as you would imagine, we still have not found the perfect formula for all the ways that you can slice and dice our product. Your pricing is never done, I think, is the right takeaway there. In terms of the pricing, and kind of blending that with the go-to-market of developer first, kind of land and expand is key, and you've done it so well. Have there been any kind of big lessons for you in what it takes to successfully land and expand accounts? And I guess on the flip side also, what doesn't work? So I would say that what worked for us is that we focus primarily on land in the first few years of our existence. So I would say to other companies that I would not focus on expansion right away. I think expansion comes after you've proven that you have like a good, solid product market fit. And, you know, all the muscles of expansion are very costly and you're not ready yet, meaning that you have to invest in customer success, in professional services, in technical account managers, and like all the things that come afterwards when you develop a relationship with your customers. Expansion really becomes a good dynamic once you have those relationships, which obviously, by definition, you don't have them in the first years. So I wouldn't worry too much about it. I would worry only on the component of technical support in the beginning, especially for a technical product like ours, right? So it's all about unblocking your customers to be successful as quickly as possible and to make them use as much as your product as possible. That should be your focus. Thinking about building a big professional services team or creating like technical management or thinking about like deploying like expensive, usually expensive tools for customer success management. Those are, I would say, wasted cycles in the beginning. Later on, for sure. Totally with you there, especially in terms of the importance of land. My, my question is with a really technical product and selling specifically to developers, how does that change the structure of your sales team? And what makes sales reps really so successful in terms of kind of their capability? and ability to understand and convey the product narrative. That's also something that changes over time. So in the beginning, we wanted to have a sales team that was primarily an inside sales team. So we don't want anybody calling anybody because developers don't want to be called. They don't want to be sold. They don't want to be like bothered by somebody on the phone saying, hey, do you know about us? Developers like to discover things on their own. They like their voice of their colleagues, they want the recommendations of the community, they want that authenticity, which is really difficult to build later. So you have to kind of build it from the beginning. So the sales team in the beginning needs to be primarily an inbound motion, an inbound machine. 
in the beginning, all the go-to-market, in our case, and for a developer-fueled company like ours, it's all about empowerment and enablement. So it's documentation, it's tutorials, it's content marketing, it's participation in everywhere and any place where developers are. So these are communities and forums and events that are specifically for them. And so your sales machine becomes primarily like an order taking. So there's no need for, let's say, proof of concepts or like heavyweight sales in connections. When you get an order is because somebody says, look, you know, we've been trying you for a long time. We, I read all these documents. I'm already using you, but hey, I cannot pay you with my credit card anymore, or I cannot use your free tier anymore because we need a million users or 10 million users, or I happen to be working in this big company and my chief security officer has questions. You know, we need to know about your compliance. We need to know about your security posture, as an example. But all the pieces of trying and are you the right fit for me are completely answered beforehand. Later on, those things are required because, you know, the scope of a developer in the land, it's typically around a project. It's not going to be like a strategic platform that everybody in the company will be using. So if you want to make that leap from a point solution or a single project into more like this is the API and the service that we use for all our needs in the organization, that's when you need to build the engine of the more traditional enterprise software sales, which is then you need sales engineers, you will need call calling, you may need to call into personas that are not necessarily developers, they're not necessarily builders, they might be the security organization could be directors of a product. They can be digital transformation executives, stuff like that, if that makes sense. It totally does. Can I ask, is that a really difficult transition to make? Because it's a very structurally significant transition. Is it difficult? And what's challenging about the transition? Well, nothing in company building is easy. <laughs> If, if somebody <laughs> tells you, oh, you know, that must be easy, nothing is easy and it uh, takes time and, and effort. So, yeah, it is difficult. It's a transition. The key is perhaps it's not in the mechanics of it because it's fairly well known how an inside sales or an outbound sales go-to-market machine works. Perhaps the difficulty is in knowing when to do it and when is the time to do it, when it's appropriate to invest. And so it's not too late but it's not too early. Not too early because you're spending a lot of money on things that you're not producing or too late when you're leaving a lot of money on the table because you're not reaching out the right people in your customer base. So timing is probably the most critical one. It's not different from the hunting farmer analogy that it's used in sales for when is the time to hire farmers and what is the time to make that transition as well, which is obviously very, very closely tied to your land and expand question before. Totally. And I'm very much with you on the timing there. In terms of the people that you do add to the team, it was super interesting. When I chatted to Manu and Karen before the episode, they both really focused on the team building aspects that you've done so well. Karen told me that you live and die by a few cultural values. 
values. How can I not dig into that? What are those values and how do they guide yours and the team's thinking today? We have three core values. And it took us a while to get there. That's another maybe tidbit of advice for others. It is important to codify and to spend cycles in capturing and making those explicit because the values will be implicit when you start the company. You're so few. It's going to be five people. You choose them all. You know them all. You know what they're thinking before they're writing a message on Slack. So there's no really a need to be very explicit about what's important and what's not important. What is the framework you make decisions on? But as your company grows, it is absolutely critical that you be explicit about what's important, what's not, how you make decisions, how you resolve conflict, which is probably the most important practical components of defining a culture is like, how do you make decisions in your organization? And how do you make decisions at scale? It's obviously more complicated because you don't have the luxury of knowing everybody in the organization anymore. And so we have, after a few cycles, we ended up with three core values. The first one, we call it, we give a shit. And giving a shit is really impactful way of conveying this message of care, deeply caring about what we do, caring about the quality of what we do, caring about our customers' needs, caring about our team requirements and being proud of the things that we built, right? That's give a shit. The second one, we call it N plus one is greater than N. And it's a geeky way of conveying this message of constant improvement. So every iteration of our product is a little bit better than it was before. Every day, we are better in everything we do. It could be a small thing like clean up after you on a conference room and you care and you also improve the place. Or it could be fixing a typo in a document or shipping an entire new product. It's all about constant improvement of everything we do. And the final one, we call it one team, one score, because, you know, we believe, and that's perhaps rooted in my very first mistake when I started my first company a long, long time ago, was this uh, prejudice, being an engineer, I had this prejudice, and I was completely wrong, that product was everything. Everything else was secondary and ancillary to building the product. And that if I built, I had this belief that if I built an amazing product, everything else will kind of fall through. And that's not true. You need everybody. You need like all the different organs. You need sales, you need marketing, you need professional services, you need finance and operations, you need security, you need engineering, you need product, you need design, you need everything. And it's a little bit like uh, football, you know, our football, not the American football. So, <laughs> you know, how do you win at football? And the common answer is you just score goals. And that's not how you win at football. You win at football by scoring more than the other team. And for that, you need both the forwards and you also need the goalies. And so you cannot win just with forwards or just with goalies. You need an entire team. And that's the third one that it's important for me. I love a football analogy. And so that's so good to hear and totally with you there. I, I do want to touch on kind of a little bit deeper in the standard of that kind of culture and company building element. Because a little birdie also tells me that you're a student of Lencioni's teachings on team dynamics. What have been your big takeaways from the studies? And what have you implemented from the studies themselves? Well, your bird, it's very well informed, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm a big fan of Lencioni's uh, work. I especially like the framework of how you build teams and effective and efficient and highly productive teams. He's got this pyramid, which is obviously tied to the most famous works. It's the five dysfunctions of a team. But I like the more positive view of that, which is, you know, you build essentially great teams on trust first, 
on conflicts, so the ability to resolve and address and go and tackle conflict, which is impossible to do without trust. You build on, a, on commitment, on accountability, and finally on results. So we are all here to deliver results. A lot of people kind of like take that hierarchy and they make it upside down. And so they focus on the results, but they don't focus at all on all the other layers. And so there become teams where there's no accountability or there's no commitment or everyone is working on their own stuff, but not behind common goals, you might obtain a lot of disjoint results that individually are great, but they might not be aligned with the goals of the company. And so, you know, all the way down to obviously lack of trust, which is natural, it's intrinsic in humans, and it's one of the things that we need to build. It's the ability to trust each other, the ability to believe and have a deep belief that we are all in this together and that I'm not going after you because that's the only way you can essentially go straight into conflict knowing that when you're dealing with conflict or with a contentious problem it's not because you're going behind or against a specific person or trying to get his job or her job you're trying to do the best for the company and for the mission and I resonate so much with those concepts that I went all in with them. I hired coaches. I trained our team, our executive team. I used the language. I used the framework in all our communications. I use it in every opportunity I have to instill them in every layer of the organization. Speaking of kind of instilling them in every layer of the organization, also slightly external to the organization, because Karen, when we chatted before, said about your insane ability to build trust with employees, investors, customers, but also in short spaces of time, which I think it's important. And so for me, I'd love to hear, how do you think about creating this environment of safety and trust with these different groups? And what have you found really works? I think the root of that is the authenticity and being consistent. It doesn't mean that we all agree all the time. And I have plenty of people inside the company and in various degrees and at different levels of the company that I don't agree with. And they don't agree with me either. But that's okay because, you know, we both believe that we are doing the best for the company. We all believe that we have the pure intentions behind our beliefs. And so we can disagree and move forward. We can disagree and commit anyway, which is another component of the framework that I was describing before. But at the root of it is the authenticity and the consistency. If you keep the ratio between what you say and what you do pretty high and it's the same and it's always the same, and being authentic, it's been also able to be vulnerable and to admit errors and to say like, you know what, you were right. I thought that you were wrong, but you were actually right. And that create forges and it creates its virtuous circles of trust because, you know, you are able to come across as somebody that is willing to learn all the time. I totally agree, especially with the vulnerability and leadership element. I think that's kind of core to really creating that environment of trust. Can I ask you a weird one? And it's kind of off schedule and off the bat. But, you know, you seem such a composed, calm and collected leader and everything seems very natural to you in terms of leadership style when I listen to you. What elements do you struggle with and, and what have you done to kind of improve your skills in those areas where you struggle in terms of leadership? Well, I'm not sure if I am... <laughs> 
as composed as I come across. You know, I do my best. I like some principles that I use them all the time. One of them is I focus on things that I have control of and I don't waste time on things that I don't have control of. And so that, you know, is very closely related to the anxiety that people feel and the angst that people feel when they focus on the things that they don't control and they try to control them. And so without going to like the deep philosophical components of that, I completely ignore or I try my best to ignore things that I don't really have any influence. So like, I'll give you a good example of this. So many, many people will ask me, aren't you worried about this competitor or the markets or what is going to happen if you, you know, there's a big recession or what happens if Brexit or whatever happens in American politics? And my answer to them is like, no, I couldn't care less, you know, from a company point of view, because I don't have any control of any of those events. I will use the input of those events. It's not that I'm going to live in oblivion to what's happening around me, but I will use them as inputs because the one thing that I do control is what we do in that context. So if something happens in the market or if a competitor does something or announces something, it's not I'm going to just ignore them and pretend that it's not happening. I will take that into account, but I will focus on what I can do, not on what the company can do and what products that we can ship and what problems that we can solve and how we are going to go to market and how we're going to change our pricing. All the things that are in our control, as opposed to like trying to be obsessed by everything that happens around us. Because guess what? What happens around us, first of all, we don't control. And second, it's overwhelming. You just open the newspaper every day or read Twitter every day or whatever your favorite source of information is. And if you pay attention to that, it can consume your entire life, your every second of your existence on things that, again, are essentially input, but they're not you. And so I put all my emphasis on that. And maybe that's what helps project a little bit of this calmness that other people perceive in me. You may say you're not as calm as you come across, but I feel incredibly meditative and calm just listening to you. So uh, I, I don't trust that at all. And it's wonderful to hear. I, I do want to move into my favorite though, Eugenia, which is uh, the 60 second Sasta. So I say a short statement and then you hit me with your immediate thoughts. Are you ready to dive in? Let's do it. So tell me a moment in your life that served as an inflection point and changed the way that you think? Perhaps the one moment that comes to mind is when I was drafted in the army. So I didn't expect that, but I was drafted and I was already an engineer. And then I found myself being the lowest level foot soldier in the hierarchy. And that was a, an incredible good lesson in humility and being able to do anything. And back to what I was telling you before of our ability to control. And I found that I was able to control me, but not everything around me. And that was a turning point in my life. Yeah, that's a very seminal moment to be faced with. Tell me, what quality or quantity of logos in the early days, what should they focus on? Sheer quality or just the quantity and velocity? You should focus on delighting whoever comes to your door. And that's probably quality. You know, you want people that really love and are engaged and can spend perhaps a disproportionate amount of time with you to shape the way your product will be built. Totally agree with you there in terms of whoever the customer is, delight them. Tell me, what do you believe that most around you disbelieve? I think people reject 
problems and challenges. You know, we all naturally shy away of issues in our lives. And I learned over time to actually embrace them and run towards them. I run towards problems and issues because problems and challenges and, and issues are feedback and are mechanisms to make us better. And so I kind of embrace mistakes and I embrace problems every day. And I encourage everybody in our company to do the same. So go and stretch yourself, you know, put another plate on your bar if you do weightlifting. And yeah, it's not going to be comfortable, but it's the one way of making you stronger. Final one. What do you know now that you wish you'd known at the beginning of your time founding AltZero? Well, perhaps earlier than that, and I kind of gave this away already, which is you really need every discipline to build a great company. I don't believe there's such a thing as a sales-driven company or a product-driven company or an engineering-driven company or a customer-driven company. I think you need all those pieces. You might have a bias, but if you build an amazing product that it's fantastic, it's brilliant from an engineering perspective, that it's not a warranty of success. In the same way that if you have like a world-class sales organization, if your product is not great, yeah, you might be able to convince a few, but that's not going to make a company great. You need greatness across the board. Listen, I've so enjoyed this episode. As I said, it's been incredibly calming just listening to your collective thoughts. I can't thank you enough for joining me and I can't wait to see the future ahead for All Zero. Well, it's me that I thank you, Harry, for this opportunity. Great talking with you. Always enjoy doing this. So very happy to be here. I mean, I do just love his voice, and I have to say that episode was so much fun to do, and I can't wait to see the exciting times ahead for Auth Zero. If you'd like to see more from Eugenio and that incredible voice, you can find him on Twitter at Eugenio underscore Pace. Likewise, it'd be great to welcome you behind the scenes here at the show. You can do so on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs. Always love to see you there. But before we leave you today, you have to check out Electric. Why Electric? Well, did you know that if your network goes down, it can cost you on average $5,600 a minute? Electric can help. What if I also told you, you could have 100% confidence that your business data is secure and allow for new employees to be onboarded with ease and offboarded securely in a few short clicks. Again, Electric can help. So your employees automatically have the right applications installed with the right permissions. And so it's time to make the change and engage with the first of its kind IT platform, Electric. Delivering enterprise-grade IT support, previously not available to small and medium-sized businesses, at a fraction of the cost. So whether you have IT in-house or no IT at all, Electric solve it all at lightning fast speed either remotely or sending a certified partner to you so if you're interested in deploying world-class it which keeps your employees productive and data secure visit electric.ai forward slash saster that's electric.ai forward slash saster and speaking of keeping your employees productive and happy as saster one of the most consistent lines we've heard from the community is i love the events and i love the saster blog posts but i just wish there was a way to train my team on all of this well saster finally made it easy with saster pro saster pro is an online fully automated training program for SaaS leaders to train their teams on the entire SASTA playbook. Every week, SASTA Pro sends you a 10-minute lesson so your team can learn together at the same time. And if you sign up now, we'll actually give you one free pass to SASTA Annual in March, my favorite event of the year by far, and one free pass to SASTA Europa this summer. That's always amazing fun. Go to SASTAPro.com to sign up today. That's SASTAPro.com. As always, I so appreciate all your support and I can't wait to bring you another fantastic episode next week.